You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. You know, it was just so good to sing those songs and to hear you sing those songs. To sing together is such a, a gift to us. It not only expresses our thanksgiving and praise to the Lord, it, it does something for our souls to not just sing, but to hear one another sing. Because that's what unites us this morning. We're not here for any other reason. Nothing else unites us but the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's good to sing about that together. And if you think, man, could it get any better than that? I got good news for you. God is now going to address us. So yes, it does get even better. If the singing wasn't great, now God is going to speak to us through his words. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to make your way to the gospel according to Luke. Today we're in chapter 9. We're picking up where we left off last week. If you're a guest with us, once again, we're so glad you're here. We, we just want to welcome you. Glad that you're here, here at LifeGate. We often just take time to walk through a book of the Bible. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. And today we're in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. As I read these words from Holy Scripture, I want to invite you to follow along. And let me just remind us, church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 9. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that you're one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. 
Every two years, a survey is conducted by Ligonier Ministries with the help of LifeWay Research. And this survey that's taken every two years is called the State of Theology Survey. I think it's been taken since 2016. And the last time this survey was taken was in the year 2022. And in January of 2022, a little over 3,000 people were asked on an online questionnaire to answer 35 questions involving theology, morality, and biblical ethics. And for each question, each of the 35 questions, they could answer one of the following options. Undecided. They could say, in light of that question, they somewhat agree or somewhat disagree. Or that they strongly agree or strongly disagree. Now, of the 35 questions that were asked, I want to focus in on two. When the 3,000 people were asked to answer the following question, true or false, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Of the 3,000 people, 32% said they disagreed. 13% said that they were not sure. Get this, 55% said they agreed that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. Then when asked, true or false, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Of the 3,000 that were surveyed, 36% said they disagreed. 11% said they were not sure. And 53% agreed that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. Now, friends, if you were to take this survey today, how would you answer those two questions? How would you answer those two questions? Who is Jesus and what was the purpose of his life? You see, in chapter, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20, think of it this way. Jesus is conducting a survey among his disciples regarding his unique identity. So, so let's go back to those three verses and let's listen in to the results. I have three points this morning, and our first point is the question and the confession, verses 18 through 20. And I want to read these three verses again. Or, ver, or read actually verses 18 and 19 again. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Think about what Jesus is doing here. Jesus wanted to find out from his disciples what the vast majority of people were saying about him. He was essentially taking a survey. And what they say about the crowd's res response in light of that answer was what we saw last week in verses 7 through 9. When it said Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. 
and by some that Elijah appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So do you hear what the crowds, all the people that are coming to see Jesus, they see his miracles, they hear his teaching, and Jesus on this particular occasion says, guys, I I would just love to hear from you. As you interact with people, who are they saying I am? And the overwhelming response from everyone who's encountering Jesus is he's uniquely sent by God. But most of him, most of the people just view him as an Old Testament prophet that's come back from the dead. And what's so interesting about the crowd's confession is the fact that among the list, some people are saying John the Baptist, some people are saying Elijah, some people are saying, well, it was another prophet. Notice what no one is saying. Well, this must be the Messiah. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. There's lots of theories of who he is. It's clear he's sent by God. But that means he must be a prophet. No one says, well, maybe he's the long-awaited Messiah. So, what does Jesus do next? He then moves from asking his disciples, who do the people say I am? To then in verse 20, he asks them this question. But who do you say that I am? I get what the crowds are saying, but guys, ladies that are with me, remember Jesus had more than just the 12 with them. Who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up and says, the Christ of God. That is who you are. Listen, this, this single question by Jesus, along with Peter's answer, is the turning point of the entire gospel of Luke. If we had time this morning, we, we could spend more time talking about this. And you would see this in all of the other gospel accounts. This is the turning point. In Matthew and Mark's account of this very incident... Jesus has made it to Caesarea Philippi, the furthest away from Jerusalem. And as soon as these words come out of Peter's mouth, who he is, all of a sudden it's time to make a beeline to Jerusalem. This is the turning point of this entire gospel. Everything has been building to this point. Who is this man? Who is this man? Jesus says, okay, who does everybody say that I am? Okay, now who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Think about this question. Who is Jesus? This single question is the most important question anyone can answer. It wasn't just the most important question then. It is the most important question today. And listen, how you and I answer this question will change the course of our life and our eternal destiny. This is a big question. It is the biggest, most important question. And Jesus asked this question, and notice the answer. You are the Christ 
of God. Now, I don't think Peter is just answering on his own here. I think he's representing, as he often does, the, the rest of the disciples. So I think this is not just Peter's confession. I would believe it's probably his disciples' confession also. And they say, we know who you are. You're the Christ of God. Now, by Peter calling Jesus the Christ, He, along with his other disciples, were declaring that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one from God who will fulfill all the promises of God in which the Old Testament pointed to. So that little phrase, you're the Christ of God, oh, it comes with a lot of fright. Because what they were declaring in that moment What they were saying is that this is the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one from God, in which the entire scriptures up to this point have been pointing us to. And if we recall back at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, the first four verses, the preface of this gospel, we learned from Luke that Jesus came to fulfill all the promises of God for his people, whether Jew or Gentile, that's who Jesus is. And Peter, on behalf of the rest of the group, says that's who you are. But, if it's true, and Peter's confession is correct, which it is, then, then Jesus is the Messiah. And if he is the Messiah, then he must be God in the flesh because no created being could ever do what Jesus is going to be able to do to fulfill all the promises of God. So if that that phrase comes with freight, you're the Christ of God, you're the Messiah. Well, if, if the Messiah is called to fulfill all the promises of God, no mere man can do that. So by calling him that, they're saying... Peter, or or Jesus, you are God in the flesh who's come to fulfill all the promises of God. Do you see Peter's confession is a game changer? But notice what happens next. Peter makes this huge confession, and then look what takes place after that. Jesus confesses to his disciple right after Peter's confession, and what he says, it must have been a bombshell that no one expected. Here here they are having a great day. (laughs) Jesus says, hey guys, love to hear what the crowds say about me. They answer, he says, what do you guys say? Peter answers, you think they'd just leave it at that. But then Jesus says what he does next in verses 21 through 22. And what Jesus is going to say, what he revealed that day to his disciple was in essence the very thing that makes him the Messiah. So they just said, Peter just said, hey, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Okay, here's what makes me the Messiah. That brings us now to our second point, the passion prediction. Verses 21 through 22. Now notice what Jesus says to his disciples right after this confession. Verse 21, he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this 
to no one. Now, before Jesus lets the cat out of the bag and says what he's about to say in verse 22, Jesus commanded his disciples to not say a word about his true identity. Don't don't miss the language here. He strictly charged them and commanded them. It's not like Jesus was saying, hey guys, that's great that you know that. Let's just keep that on the down low. It's almost like if you were there, he looks them in the eyes and says, guys, do you understand not a word is to come out of your mouth of what you just said? Don't tell your friends. Don't tell your wife. I'm not asking, I'm not suggesting, I'm telling you. What you just said stays right here. Which leaves us scratching our head. Why, why would Jesus say this? Wouldn't he want everybody to know his true identity? Eventually he would. But see, had, had word gotten out prematurely, the crowds would have mistaken his identity. They, they would have said, oh great, the Messiah has come. He's going to be a a political Messiah who's going to rule an earthly kingdom. He's going to liberate Israel from Rome. Good. All right, let's go grab our swords. We're tired of paying taxes to Rome. We've been waiting for this moment. We've had failed attempts with other folks that have come. If you know anything about the intertestamental period and Judas Maccabeus and all of that, this isn't the first person who's come along and said, yeah, let's, let's, let's be liberated. And had the word gotten out, would everyone have understood what it really meant for him to be the Messiah? But see, Jesus didn't come to liberate Israel from Rome. He came to die. And that's what he then draws their attention to in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. What a bombshell. Everything was going great up until that point. And did you notice what Jesus says here? Pay attention to that word, must. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Jesus, notice what he doesn't say. He didn't just say, hey guys, I will die. I must die. And that word, when it's used by Luke, and it's one of his strategic words he uses, he doesn't just throw it around often, but when he uses it, it always communicates divine intention. This is one of those words you need to pay attention to in Luke's gospel. This must happen. Why must it happen? Because it is God's will. See, Jesus isn't just predicting his death and resurrection. And he's not just doing that because he happens to know the future. It's not what he's doing here. Hey, guys, I, if I'm God in the flesh, you know I know the future. And I, I hate to break it to you, but 
I, I'm, I'm going to be arrested, beaten, mistreated, and killed. But hey, good news, I'm going to rise. I just wanted you to know that I know what that's going to ha- that that's going to happen. No, that's not what he's doing. He's not predicting his death. He's not predicting his resurrection. No, he's saying it is all according to divine plan. I'm going into this knowing that this is my ultimate goal. This is why I came. It is according to plan. Now, here's a question. Why did Jesus tell his disciples about his death right after Peter's confession? As I said a moment ago, in all the Gospels, this is the turning point of the Gospel. And here's another thing to be aware of. In all four Gospels, Jesus never mentions anything about his suffering or his death until Peter's confession. Those two go together. It's like as soon as those words come out of Peter's mouth, Jesus says, okay, now I need to talk to you about something. We had to get here first. We're at point A. You just said, I'm the Christ. You know what makes me the Christ? I'm going to die. You can't understand one without the other. See, the reason that Jesus says what he does here right after Peter's confession, it it goes back to his command to his disciples to stay quiet about his identity for the time being. See, you can't understand the identity of Jesus or the reason he came unless you understand his death and resurrection. And once we have eyes to see that, once we have eyes to see who Jesus is, he is, he is the Son of God incarnate. Once we see that, and once we see that his primary purpose for coming to earth was to die for his people, to atone for their sin, once we know that, then and only then can we understand what it means to follow him. That brings us now to our third point. Jesus wasn't done. After asking this question, this taking the survey, making it personal to his disciples, Peter making this confession, Jesus turning around and bringing for the first time this passion prediction. He now says, well, guys, if this is true, what does this mean for you? This is our third point, verses 23 through 27, the cost and reward of discipleship. Now we're told by Luke that Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus gets a feel for what people are saying about him. A true confession is made. Jesus then confesses why he really came. And then he says, guys... Anyone who wants to come after me to be my disciple, here's what you got to do. He says three things. You got to deny yourself. What does he mean by that? I think in the context of this passage is you've got to put someone else first beside yourself. You got to put me first above yourself. Then he throws this phrase in that, Maybe because we've grown up hearing it it, 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 it doesn't ring with the kind of 
feel that it, it, it must have really just struck the disciples when he says, and then, and then guys, I want you to not only deny yourself, I want you to take up your cross. Notice Jesus hasn't said anything about his cross yet. So why does he use this phrase, take up your cross? Most likely this is an idiom, a figure of speech. Idioms in our day are things like when we say, just bite the bullet. That's an idiom. It's, it has a cultural context. If you know what a bullet is, then it makes sense. If you don't, you go, what is that? Bite a bullet. Why would I do that? So Jesus is saying, guys, take up your cross. Now, why would that be a common idiom of the day? Because crucifixions were not rare in that day due to the Romans. And because those who were being executed had to carry their own crossbeam down the path to the place of their execution, this, this phrase came about, take up your cross. I think it might have been an expression used in Jesus' day to communicate the following. Make your way to the place where you will die. So Jesus says to the disciples that day, hey, if anybody wants to come after me, first you got to deny yourself. Then you got to take up your cross. Get, get on this path to the place of death. And then he says, you got to follow me. You got to go where I go. Now, what is Jesus getting at by saying that? Well, I don't think we're supposed to dive into each passage and, and take them apart so much that, that we miss them as a whole. I think Jesus is communicating one thing in this, in this verse. And here's what he's saying. Those that he's calling to follow him, must give him their total allegiance. Those who are called to follow him must give him their total allegiance. Now, think about what this means. This is so important. This is what it means to follow Jesus. A mere theological confession is not enough. Jesus just says, guys, who does everybody say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus said, okay, good. That's, that's all we needed to know. He then says, great. Here's the next step. You have to have total allegiance to follow me, which means that confessing who Jesus is, that he is God the Son incarnate, to make that confession is necessary to be saved. But just because you make that confession doesn't mean you are saved. It's necessary to be saved. Anybody that says, well, I think Jesus is, well, he was created by God, the greatest creation of God. That's Mormonism. That's Jehovah's Witness. That's, that's not scriptural. You have to start there, but just because... We make that confession. There's something more. To illustrate this point, I, I want to share with you a story. I recall the late Dr. R.C. Spohl sharing about this very passage. He 
had the privilege many years ago to preach on this passage we're in this morning. And he thought, you know what? I want to ask some of my lost friends and, and Dr. Sproul for all of his theological knowledge hung out with the lost. He had a number of lost friends that loved him and he loved on them. And he thought, you know what? I think I'm going to ask them before Sunday this very question Jesus asked. Who, who do you say Jesus is? And as the story goes, as Dr. Sproul was planning to preach from this very passage, he went up to a particular friend that he played golf with. And if you know much about Dr. Sproul, he loved to play golf. And he was a part of a country club, and therefore he got to know a number of people. And I just want to, as a side note, commend his example. Dr. Sproul didn't just play golf in a part of the golf club, uh, part of the um, the, the, the club simply because it was something he loved. He did it strategically to be around lost people. May we emulate that example. And so he's there at the golf course and he goes up to one of his friends, a certain man he played with, and this is how R.C. Sproul described him. He said he was foul-mouthed and profane and he regularly took the Lord's name in vain. He actually had a great disdain for religion, and yet he loved R.C. and respected him greatly. But to show you the kind of guy he was, even though he did it in, in a degree of jest and affection, every time he saw R.C. Sproul, he would come up to him and in a mocking voice say, Praise the Lord! To mock him and to express his Affection. And on this particular day, Dr. Sproul says, if there's any guy I want to know what he thinks about who Jesus is, is this guy. So he walks up to them. Get this. This has got to be, I'd love to see the look on this man's face. He says, I need your help in preparing for Sunday's sermon. <laughs> As you can guess, I'm sure that man was just like, have you lost your mind? You want me to help you? And Dr. Sproul went on to explain what his text was, and, and the question that Jesus asked his disciples. And he says, can I ask you to do something? In a little while, I want to come back to you. And I want you to give me an answer. But will you answer this question? Who is Jesus? And his friend agreed. He said, just give me a little bit of time, and I'll give you the answer. So they go about their business, and four hours later, R.C. Sproul saw his friend again, and he said, well, do you have an answer? Who do you think Jesus is? And to his surprise, his friend got really serious and said, R.C., I have not stopped thinking about that question since you asked me. R.C. says, well, who do you say Jesus is? And he says, I believe he is the Son of God. Now, what did R.C. Sproul not do in that moment? Maybe we think he should. He didn't say, let's say this in his prayer. And to R.C.'s knowledge, 
Though his friend was genuinely sincere with his answer, his friend never showed any signs of commitment to faith or Jesus Christ. See, it's not enough to get that answer right. Why? Because of what Jesus says in verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Take that in for just a minute. Think about what Jesus just said. If we try to save our life, we'll lose it. But if we lose our life for the sake of Christ, we will save it. What in the world does that mean? Was Jesus implying that only those who are martyred will go to heaven? No. What is he saying then? He's saying this. If you, if you try to save your life by investing in everything in the here and now, you will lose everything in eternity. But... If we commit our allegiance to Jesus in this life, we will experience great gain both now and for eternity. That's what Jesus just said. He throws out the cost and the reward. But he's not finished. Listen to what he says next, verse 25. He asks this question for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits Himself. It's a good question. Listen to it. Think about what Jesus is saying. If we gain the whole world, but we lose our soul, is that really worth it? Do you see what he's doing there? Saying, I want, I want you to stop for just a moment before you answer this question. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to take up your cross, let me just ask you this. If you were to gain this, but to gain it, you had to lose this. Is that worth it? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's presenting us with a cost-benefit analysis, showing us that in order to gain one, we must lose the other. Let me, let me illustrate it like this. What, what if I told you that you could inherit billions of dollars but in order to do so, the person you love the most in the world had to die. Who would say, I'll take the billions? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, what if you were to gain the whole world, but you were to forfeit the most valuable thing of all? Is that really worth it? Is that really worth it? See, we have to decide what is more valuable, the temporal or the eternal. The world as we know it are our souls. Life for ourselves are living for the glory of Christ. Listen, it's imperative that we know this. No person on this planet is neutral when it comes to making this decision. No person is neutral when it comes to making this decision. We are choosing 
to either live for ourselves or to live for Christ. Jesus goes on to say in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. If we were to state it negatively, because that's what Jesus is doing here, here's what Jesus is saying. If if we don't claim Christ before others, or if we make disclaimers about what Jesus has said to those around us, then Jesus will be ashamed of us when he comes. Take that in. We can't have a little bit of Jesus from the Bible and then cut out other parts of Jesus. Jesus says, those who are ashamed of me And of my words, I will be ashamed of him when I come. If I could give you a picture of what Jesus just did in verses 24 through 26, it would be like this. I almost can picture Jesus doing this after saying these words. I wonder if he just took his foot, drew a line in the sand, and says, okay. Who do you choose? Me or you? You can't choose both. Who do you choose? So if we choose to live for ourselves, get this, we lose Christ and we suffer loss for eternity. But if we live for Christ and die to ourselves, we gain him and save our lives. Do you see the point Jesus is making? The call to follow him demands total allegiance. Now, I would imagine after hearing these words, And thinking about what Jesus just said, many of us could be tempted here this morning to look at this line in the sand that Jesus just made and wonder, do I have the right to cross over? After all, there there have been many times in my life, maybe even recently, where I have not boldly stood up for Christ among my friends, our coworkers, our family. So you may be wondering, is Jesus right now ashamed of me as his disciple? If that's you, can I just encourage you to take heart from these words from a commentator named Brian Chappell. He says this, The words of Jesus haunt us because there are times, too many times, when we are ashamed of him. But as haunting as these words are for us, they must have been all the more haunting for the disciples. They they were even more ashamed of Jesus than we are. And at the time when it mattered the most... As Jesus went to his cross, unashamed to take our guilt upon himself and to 
and was unashamed to die naked for our sins, his disciples were ashamed of him. Rather than denying themselves, they denied Jesus, as Peter did during his trial. Rather than taking up their crosses, they left Jesus to take up his cross alone. And afterwards, rather than proclaiming Jesus in his word, they gathered in secret shame. Yet, Jesus had grace for his disciples. He went to the cross to die for their shame. And when he was raised from the dead, he went back to give them the courage to meet the terms of his discipleship. So friends, the Jesus who drew a line in the sand doesn't say, come on my side if you're perfect, if you've done everything right, and you've never brought me dishonor. He says, I am the crucified Messiah who died in your place for your sins, for all the times you failed. And guess what? If you come, I will welcome you. I won't remind you of the last time you didn't stand up for me. I will welcome you. See, the one who calls us died in our place for our failures. He took our shame to do what we could not do. And get this. He is not ashamed of us when we come in his name. Now there's one last verse, as you can see in verse 27. I only want to say something briefly about, because we're actually going to come back to it next time. Here's what the verse reads. Jesus closes out this by saying, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Why did Jesus say that? Well, there is a lot more going on that we will leave for next time. But for now, here, here's what we are to hear Jesus saying. He's making a promise about the fate of of his disciples. Get this. He knows their destiny because he controls their destiny. In the same way he can say, guys, I'm going to die and rise again, not just because I know the future, but because I'm in control of the future. Guess what, guys? Some of you are not going to die until you see this. You can almost say, well, Jesus, how do you know that? And Jesus says, because your life is in my hand. Your destiny is in my hand. See, if Jesus could speak about their future and his future the way he does, because he is in control of it, he can speak about our future in the same way. Our future, when we belong to Jesus, is in his hand. I think this is... I think this, this passage... Many things could be said about it. Many points of application we could draw from it. But I, I just want to give one thought as we close. Friends, we live in a culture that avoids conversations about death. And we live in a culture that speaks about eternity and heaven with woefully uninformed assumptions. Which means, church, 
we have a wonderful opportunity. Because our gospel speaks to those very things. Because here's, here, here's something we need to know. Death is the greatest evangelist. Everybody's going to die and everybody knows they're going to die. And yet the world says, let's not talk about death. And when we do, we're all just going to say, everybody goes to heaven. Uncle Joe's looking down on me from heaven. We have an opportunity to speak in and say, why is there death? And what happens to you when you die? Friends, we, we have a wonderful opportunity as a church to be a witness in many ways, but one is, is this one. Because if you think about what Jesus was doing on that day, he was calling his disciples to follow him, and he was doing it by bringing eternity to bear. And we must do the same. We must be a people who talk about death and talk about life after death because we know, we know the one who can bring life and life everlasting. And we also know that those who live for themselves will forsake true life now and for eternity. And that ought to weigh on us and it ought to compel us to be a witness in our community and beyond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your clear word to us this morning. And now I pray that as your word was read and as your word was proclaimed, that no one just heard my voice, but they could hear the very words of Jesus calling them to come. Today is a day of decision for us all. Daily, we have to take up our cross. Daily, we have to decide, me or Jesus. Oh, Father, may, may the reality of what we've just heard, may it rest on us. And may it solidify our desire to serve you and to follow you. And for those, Lord, that are here that have never crossed that line, they've never said, I want to follow Jesus, Lord, I pray that today would be one of the means you use to bring them to saving faith. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Even sometimes when you have to say things that are hard for us to hear, you do it because you love us. Because you want to reward us for eternity. Lord, may we take your word to heart. And may we, today and tomorrow and all throughout the week, may we take up our cross and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.